I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. And this is okay. Let me tell you why you're wrong. I'm uh, I'm pretty stoked to be doing this episode because this week uh, the show is marking its one year anniversary. That's right, one full year of talking about economics. I'd like to thank all of you for listening, and I I hope that I've been able to help you all be a little more informed about economics uh, and as we go into our second year I, I hope that I can keep bringing you you know worthwhile content now I can't think of a better way of celebrating this milestone than uh, rolling up our sleeves and diving right back into Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations today we're going to be covering book one chapter six of the component parts of price of commodities uh, as we uh, as has been the case over the last few chapters, Smith is digging into a, a very complex idea uh, that, that we tend to not put too much thought into. Again, how are prices for goods, the, the, the prices that we see whenever we walk into a store, how exactly do we figure out what those prices are and, and whether or not the, the, the price that's being charged is, is fair and reasonable? Naturally, uh, Smith thinks that he's got a, a decent beat on this, and uh, here he feels that he can break up the price of goods into three contributing factors. Uh, as Smith has always wanted to do, uh, he likes to start at the, the most primal version of the concept and then move for, forward from there. Here, he starts by saying, <clears throat> quote, in that early and rude state of society, which precedes both the accumulation of stock and the appropriation of land, the proportion between quantities of labor necessary for acquiring different objects seems to be the only circumstance which can afford any rule for exchanging them for one another. If, 
among a nation of hunters, for example, it usually costs twice the labor to kill a beaver, which it does to kill a deer. One beaver should naturally exchange for, uh, for or be worth two deer. It is natural that what is usually the produce of two days or two hours of labor should be worth double what is usually the produce of one day or one hour of labor. Now again, we're back to Smith's assumption that, that labor is the primary and, and, and the truest method of determining value. And Smith's take on it makes sense. If a task, in this case hunting, takes two hours to perform, then the fruits of, of that labor, here the beaver hide, should be worth double what would take one hour to perform. Of course, that's an example which is intentionally very broad and, and lacking in the nuances that would doubtlessly contribute to a, a real concept of price. But, but Smith is just trying to set the table and, and establish the core idea here. After all, as Smith himself pointed out last chapter, labor may in fact be the key factor in value, but the exact value of labor is tricky. It can't simply be measured in terms of time, because the amount of skill, training, and effort that goes into an hour's worth of labor does and, and should affect the value of that hour of labor. The labor of someone pulling a lever in a widget factory for two hours and a doctor performing surgery for two hours are not the same, even if they do take the same amount of time. Uh, as such, each of these people should not be paid the same for two hours of work. Or, as Smith puts it, quote, if one species of labor requires an uncommon degree of dexterity and ingenuity, the esteem which men have for such talents will naturally give a value to their produce, superior to what would be due to the time employed about it. Such talents can seldom be acquired but in the consequence of long application, and the superior value of their produce may frequently be no more than a reasonable compensation for the time and labor which must be spent in acquiring them. Makes sense. The trickiness comes not in with the, it doesn't come with the fact that they should be paid differently between, you know, again, uh, a lever puller and a doctor. The trickiness comes with exactly how much that pay differential should be. Remember, this is economics. It's not enough to just decide that there should be a difference. Even a sociologist could figure that out. We need to quantify that difference to the highest possible level of precision. Oh, and if you're thinking, dang, sick burn on sociologists. Yeah, it was. Any sociologists out there? Come at me, bro. Of course I'm kidding. Sociologists are the best at, uh, at overgeneralizing things. In fairness, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that my beef with the subject of sociology stems from uh, when I got an F on a term paper in a political sociology class because I tried to, you know, inject some nuance into the arguments in my thesis. And, uh, and let me tell you, I don't let that go. I will use my dying breath to bag on sociology.
But back to Smith. I would like to point out that, that Smith here seems to be taking us down an, uh, an odd road. Like we talked about last time, Smith didn't quite invent the concept of supply and demand as we think of it today. Uh, a, a sim- the simple graph and the theory behind it would go through a, a gradual evolution, starting with uh, James Denham Stewart and David Ricardo, and finally become solidified in the form that we think of it by Alfred Marshall. So when you think back to just how excruciating it was sitting through your required economic principles class, don't blame Smith, blame Marshall. Uh, this is one of those rare cases where we kind of have to say that Smith Smith didn't say it first. Except he kind of did. Basically, Smith spends this chapter, and, and a fair amount of the rest of the book, sort of nipping around the idea without quite putting it precisely in the same terms that we know it today. It's there, it's just uh, not quite. Uh, he's not wrong per se, but again, he's, he's not quite there. However, in his nipping, uh, to give him credit, uh, he will get around to demand a little later down the road and effectively create what's known as the law of demand almost as an afterthought. I guess in that sense, you could say Smith did say it first. So I say all that to say this. While Smith's concept of the the driving force behind value in this very early hunter society is based around the time, effort, skill, and and quality of labor, it's very easy to, to shift the way he's talking about this concept very slightly and get to where we are today in our understanding of, of how price is created. Think of it this way. Smith says in his scenario here that the value of beaver as a commodity is twice as much as deer because it takes twice as long to hunt a beaver as it does to hunt a deer. And under those assumptions, there's every reason to believe that that would be right. But since time exists in a fixed quantity, meaning that there there are only 24 hours in a day, and only so many of those hours can be dedicated to hunting throughout the course of a day, uh, or a day of work. So let's say that's eight hours. So the beaver hunter is going to bring back in that eight hour period four beaver pelts, while the deer hunter would bring back eight deer pelts. Assuming that deer and beaver pelts are mostly perfect substitutes, And that to a consumer in this hunter society, a beaver pelt is equally as good as a deer pelt, and vice versa, then beaver pelts would be valued at double what deer pelts are because there are fewer beaver pelts. Essentially, the increased amount of labor that Smith talks about is directly affecting supply, which in turn is affecting price. It's a case of, at least as far as I'm concerned, Smith being entirely correct in his conclusions, even if how he got there is a little shaky. He's not wrong, but we have since got a better idea of exactly why he's right. 
Uh, you can flip it as well in, in his uh, other example. He talks about price being higher for products that require a higher degree of skill and dexterity. Now, he's right. And an ornately carved antique armoire is valued higher than a simple Ikea wardrobe. And it makes sense that it should be. To Smith, the additional value ascribed to the antique comes from our internal reverence for the craftsmanship that went into making it. We appreciate the work and skill and are thus willing to pay more for it. But if you tweak that idea just a smidge, you could simply reword it to say that because we appreciate the craftsmanship, demand for the antique is higher than for the basic IKEA model. And as a result of that higher demand, the price is higher. Once again, Smith's conclusion is correct, and how he got there is pretty correct. Part of me wonders if, if, if Smith's thought process here even really needs that slight tweak that I talked about, or if we're all just getting kind of hung up on the fact that he isn't using the jargon that we're used to when talking about this kind of thing. I, I tend to think that, that that it's the former and that this is one of those rare cases where Smith didn't knock it out of the park, but instead he turned in a, a stand-up triple. Uh, sorry for those of you who aren't baseball fans, but I am, and that analogy is right on the money, so I'm sticking with it. Basically, Smith may not be talking explicitly in terms of the intersection of supply and demand, but he's right there, and his conclusions still line up with exactly what we would expect to happen. So, if labor is the driving force for figuring out the, the value of the products of that labor, but determining exactly what each kind of labor is worth in comparison to each other is, again, tricky, then how do we ever come to an agreed-upon value for the products of labor, otherwise known as commodities? And, and Smith already sort of answered that question. It's the market, which is really just a, a slick way of saying that prices for these things come from trial and error. You charge too much and people won't pay it. So you gradually drop your price until people will. And there you have found the agreed upon value for your commodity. And that method is sufficient, at least in, in our sort of early tribal hunter-gatherer society that Smith starts us off with. But naturally, as society grows more complex the economy grows more complex with it. And thus, the contributing factors for value become more complex as well. Because we did not stay in a basic hunter society, because we advanced and, and because became agrarian and then industrial, because the division of labor took effect, there are now more variables that can affect price. In the early hunter society, the whole produce, or, or what gets exchanged for that produce, belongs to the labor. If, if you put the time to hunt beaver and came back to the village to exchange the beavers that you hunted, then 100% of the proceeds of that exchange belong to you. 
but as society advances, economic notions advance too. You're a good hunter, and the produce of your hunting uh, has a good exchange rate in your market. Eventually, you might amass enough what Smith refers to as stock so that you can actually afford to hire several people to turn your stock into uh, of beaver pelts into, I don't know, beaver pelt coats or some such thing. You take your stock and provide your new employees with the tools and training required to turn beaver pelts into coats and then have them manufacture the coats while you supervise them. You pay them a wage for their labor and then take the beaver pelt coats uh, that were the product of their labor and you sell them. But under this new, more complex scenario, when you go to sell the beaver pelts, uh, you need to add a new component to the price. You need to increase the price so that you can afford to pay your employees and be compensated yourself for your investment into them. You need to make a profit. Smith says, quote, Something must be given for the profits of the undertaker of the work who hazards his stock in this adventure. The value which the workmen add to the materials therefore resolves itself, in this case, into two parts, of which the one pays their wages, the other the profits of their employer upon the whole stock of materials and wages which he advanced. He could have no interest to employ them unless he expected from the sale of their work something more than what was sufficient to replace his stock to him and he could have no interest to employ a great stock, rather than a small one, unless his profits were to bear some proportion to the extent of the stock. The profits of stock, it may perhaps be thought, are only a different name for the wages of a particular sort of labor, the labor of inspection and direction. It speaks to the idea of why the owner of your company gets to make money even though you're doing all the work. Now, while Marx would look at that and say that it's because the owner has a stranglehold on the means of production and if the workers would just kill the owner and seize the means of production then they could prevent themselves from being exploited, that's not really Smith's take. Smith, in, in what I find to be a much more accurate and reasonable approach, suggests that the profits for the owner are a natural part of the process because without his investment of stock, no such beaver coat manufacturing business would exist. And the owner should be compensated for that investment through profit. Now, we'll get into Marx in future episodes. And there's a degree to which he's not entirely wrong, mainly once you get into the potential for ownership to exploit workers. Suffice to say for now, I've always found Marx's criticisms of, uh, of the capitalist system to be compelling, you know, things worth considering and trying to fix. But his solutions to these problems are terrible. Again, I'll save further analysis of Marx for another time. The point is that ownership invests their stock, and by doing so, 
ownership takes on the bulk of the risk. If you open up a beaver coat manufacturing company and it goes under, yes, the workers are, are out of their jobs, but the ownership is out of the stock that was invested into that venture. That risk that, that's assumed by ownership has a value, and that value gets paid out by the ownership's ability to collect profits. Again, can this dynamic be exploited and bastardized? You bet it can, but at least in the overarching theory, this kind of system makes sense. And so we have a world where there are two components to price. Smith says, quote, In this state of things, the whole produce of the labor does not always belong to the labor. He must, in most cases, share it with the owner of the stock which employs him. But wait, there's more. Smith writes next, quote, as soon as the land of any country has all become private property, the landlords, like all other men, love to reap where they never sowed and demand a rent even for its natural produce. And so we find our third component to price, that of rent. Now, as you may be able to tell from the way he introduces the idea, Smith seems to have a fairly stilted view on the idea of charging rent. I mean, love to reap what they never sowed. That's, that's kind of snarky for Smith. Unfortunately, I'm not a scholar on the personal life of Adam Smith, and, and what I've been able to find in his personal life doesn't indicate that he had issues with landlords, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that he did. And, you know, decided to put him on blast in his uh, written works here. Anyway, because a rent of, of some kind or another must usually be paid in order to operate any kind of business, that expense is going to get rolled into the end price of the final product and, and passed on to the consumer. So the cost of the rent factors into the cost of the product. And so with these three components, Smith says... Quote, in every society, the price of every commodity finally resolves itself into some one or other or all uh, of those three parts. And in every improved society, all the three enter more or less as component parts into the price of the far greater part of commodities. Now, he goes into some examples of this, and, and while all three components play a role in the end price. Smith wants to be very clear about just how interconnected those components are and how each is kind of a version of the others. He starts by talking about corn. Quote, In the price of corn, for example, one part pays the rent of the landlord. Another pays the wages or maintenance of the laborers and laboring cattle employed in producing it, and the third pays the profit of the farmer. These three parts seem either immediately or ultimately to make up the whole price of corn. A fourth part, it may perhaps be thought, is necessary for replacing the stock of the farmer or for compensating the wear and tear of his laboring cattle and other instruments of husbandry. 
but it must be considered that the price of any instrument of husbandry, such as a laboring horse, is itself made up of the same three parts, the rent of the land upon which he is reared, the labor of tending and rearing him, and the profits of the farmer who advances both the rent of this land and the wages of this labor. Though the price of the corn, therefore, may be the price as well as the maintenance of the horse, the whole price still resolves itself either immediately or ultimately into the same three parts of rent, labor, and profit. Once again, this kind of interconnected universe of economics where even the component parts of the price of corn are made up of their own subcomponents and that this will eventually bear itself out into the final price of corn. And these components, as well as their subcomponents, start to, start to fit together like a Russian nesting doll. Smith points out that as this nesting effect becomes more elaborate, as with goods that are further down the line of manufacturing, the end price is higher because each level of the nesting needs to cover its wages, profits, and rent. He says, quote, as any particular commodity comes to be more manufactured, that part of the price which resolves itself into wages and profit comes to be greater in proportion to that which resolves itself into rent. In the progress of the manufacture, not only the number of profits increase, but every subsequent profit is greater than the foregoing, because the capital from which it derives must always be greater. The capital which employs the weavers, for example, must be greater than that which employs the spinners, because it not only replaces that capital with its profits, but pays, besides the wages of the weavers, the profits must always bear the same proportion to that capital. Now, Smith does admit that in developing economies, not all three components may have an effect. Rent, he considers to be more of the hallmark of fully developed economies, and, and stock only forms when enough labor is being done in order to produce it. So depending on how developed an economy is, you may not see all three components in effect, but you will always see at least one of them. And of course, this plays out no matter what level you're looking at, whether it's down to a single product or, or looking at the gross domestic product of a nation. Quote, wages, profit, and rent are the three original sources of all revenue as well as of all exchangeable value. All other revenue is ultimately derived from some one or other of these. Whoever derives his revenue from, uh, from a fund, which is his own, must draw it either from his labor, from his stock, or from his land. The revenue derived from labor is called wages. That derived from stock by the person who manages or employs it is called profit. That derived from it by the person who does not employ it himself but lends it to another is called the interest or the use of money. It is the compensation which the borrower pays to the lender for the profits which he has an opportunity of making by the use of money. Part of that profit naturally belongs to the borrower, who runs the risk and takes the trouble of employing it, and part to the lender, who affords him the opportunity 
of making this profit. The interest of money is always a derivative revenue, which, it, which if it is not paid from the profit which it is made by the use of the money, must be paid from some other source of revenue, unless perhaps the borrower is a spendthrift, who contracts a second debt in order to pay the interest of the first. The revenue, which proceeds altogether from land, is called rent, and belongs to the landlord. The revenue of the farmer is derived partly from his labor and partly from his stock. To him, land is only the instrument which enables him to earn the wages of this labor and to make the profits of this stock. All taxes, and all the revenue which is founded upon them, all salaries, pensions, and annuities of every kind, are ultimately derived from some one or other of these three original sources of revenue, and are paid either immediately or immediately from the wages of labor, the profits of stock, or the rent of land. Smith does clarify that when these three components belong to three separate people. The distinctions are very clear, but that it is possible for multiple components to belong to the same person, at which point the nature of which components are at play can become a little confounded. The example he uses is that of someone farming land that they themselves own. Now, once the cost of labor for cultivating that land is paid, the landowner will likely characterize all other parts of the end price to be profit. But because he is both the stockholder and the landlord, some of what he takes away is effectively the cost of rent. The same could be true for a, an independent manufacturer who owns a business but does all the manufacturing work for the business himself. As the owner, he may see all of his part of the proceeds as profit, but really some part of that is wages for labor. It just often doesn't seem that way because he is his own boss. Even something as mundane as a home garden uh, actually unites all three components of price under one person. The person owns, or at least controls, the land, and it thus receives the rent of it. They build the stock to establish the garden, and they cultivate the land to grow things. In one individual, you have rent, profit, and labor. And that right there is the component parts of price. Uh, once again, another relatively short episode, but the concepts in this chapter are pretty straightforward. So... Rather than delve into every example that Smith uses, I figured I'd keep it kind of simple this week. I'd like to welcome all of our new listeners. Uh, March has been a hell of a month for new people checking out the podcast. Uh, I hope you're all enjoying it so far and that you'll hit subscribe and uh, stay with us in the future. As usual, but uh, for all you new folks, uh, if you do want to tell me why I'm wrong, uh, come on out and join the Facebook group. Uh, either search for, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, or uh, check out the show notes uh, for this episode and all other episodes where I, I include the link. Feel free to leave a comment or post a suggestion for a future episode. Uh, so I have been toying around with some t-shirt designs lately, and I think that I've settled on two of them. Uh, once I get a decent workup of them, I will be posting that to the Facebook group, so... 
Hey, another reason to join. Uh, and I, I do need to figure out how I want to offer them, but uh, they will eventually be for sale, so keep an eye out for that. As usual, I'd like to thank George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro. If you've got a couple of minutes of free time, please do hop onto iTunes and leave a uh, rating and review for the podcast. Those reviews uh, help new listeners find the podcast, and the ratings help to bump us up in the charts. And of course, once again, thank you all for listening. One year in, and going strong. Uh, With that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.